Well, again, welcome. So glad you're uh, here with us today. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here at the Olathe campus. It's great to be together. Why don't we uh, pray as we prepare our hearts to enter uh, back into this, this great book called Hebrews that we've been journeying through together as a church. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we, uh, we believe that you speak and we long to hear from you. God, I pray that you would reveal to us more of who we are, who you've created us to be, and the weight of our guilt before you, while at the same time the, blue, the, the beauty of your plan of redemption laid out for us. So God, I pray that we would encounter you even through these ancient words, that we would encounter your son through the Holy Spirit alive and at work among us here in this place this morning. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. Well, some movies you watch to be entertained, right? You know, grab some popcorn, sit back, and forget about life for a while. Uh, other movies you watch to be changed. You know, they, they, they grip you so deeply that you, you almost aren't sure if you're going to be the same once you walk away. Uh, 12 Years a Slave is one of those movies, uh, both beautiful and terrible all at the same time. And this, this isn't a recommendation, okay? It's not for everybody. It's certainly not for kids. I'm glad I saw it, but I never want to see it again, quite honestly. It's the, the true story of a man named Solomon Northup. Um, he lived a long time ago, right? Uh, an African-American man living in the North, husband, father, a musician, who in 1841 was kidnapped, sold into slavery in the South, and served in that way, lived in that way for, for 12 years. And the movie so brutally portrays the shameful realities that weren't so long ago in our history that you, you almost feel it. Uh, the, the, the mom sold away from her kids, right? Uh, the, the whippings, the lynchings, the rapes, all right there. I mean, the most dehumanizing treatment that you can possibly even imagine. And the entire theme throughout the, the film, right, the, the constant cry is for justice. Uh, this, this longing that, that judgment will, will one day somehow be served, even, even from God. And really, that's, that's the only hope throughout the film is that, that one day God will make it right. There's one scene, actually there's several that I could show you. There's one that we're going to look at um, here. Um, again, there's plenty of places that, that cry out for this, this desire for, for justice. But this one in particular, it's, it's two women, two slaves, uh, an older one trying to encourage the younger, for both know what it's like to be the playthings of, of their master. Let, let's watch this together. Okay, in case, in case you missed it there, she said, take comfort the good Lord will manage Epps. In his own time, the good Lord will manage them all. And in the most uh, brutal scene of the film, a, a while later, that same young woman is being savagely whipped by the cruel master, Epps. And, and Solomon, he, he stands by, right, watching this, helpless, and he cries out, and this is actually a quote from the book that Solomon Northup wrote, it's also in the film, but he cries out, thou devil, sooner or later, somewhere in the course of eternal justice, thou shalt answer for this sin. And the response from the slave owner, sin. There is no sin. 
Man does what he pleases with his property. And it's, it's this moment of the film where, I mean, truthfully, watching it, where I wanted to weep, puke, and throw something all at the same time. I mean, I don't care who you are, what's your back, what you believe. In that moment of the film, there is something deep within this scream that rises up that says, Justice! Dear God, judgment! Somebody has to pay for those sins. Which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, really, if you think about it, in a culture like ours where I mean, there really is, isn't any right or wrong anymore, or in a culture that, for the most part, says, rejects the idea of God as judge, right? We, we don't like the idea of judgment or wrath or sin or hell. And we even think we believe that that doesn't happen, right? We, we, we think that morality is, is simply socially constructed, that we can do whatever we want, we live like it, and we actually think we believe it, but we know better. I mean, we give a film that explicitly cries out for the justice of God, the highest honor, right? Oscar for best picture. Because we know somebody's got to pay for those sins. We all know that. We all sense that deep within. And it's not just movies, of course, right? I mean, turn on the news. It doesn't take more than a couple of minutes to, to feel that cry, lo- that longing sort of welling up within you. Again, it doesn't matter who you are or what, you're, what you believe in this moment. We, all, we see those things and we, we cry for justice. Isn't that interesting? Why, why is that? Why, what's the explanation there? I mean, animals don't, don't feel that. I mean, just even look at the way some animals treat one another, right? Or treat other animals. And aren't, aren't we humans just another animal? And yet we cannot shake this longing for divine accountability. In a world as broken as ours, you crave judgment. But judgment for whom? Murderers rapists, child abusers, the person who cut you off in traffic yesterday, definitely those guys. What about people who exploit others? You know, who, who take advantage of others for their own selfish gain? Well, yeah, them too. I don't do that, do I? What about the chronically selfish? Define chronically. What about liars, cheats, the greedy, or, or the self-importance? Important. You see, we all believe in judgment. We just conveniently draw the line somewhere on the other side of our own sins, don't we? But if I'm honest, and I look for one moment at the darkness that continues to hide in here, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I, I mean this com- with complete honesty. As I, as I look at myself, I'm not sure I'm all that different from Master Epps. And if someone has to pay for his sins, who's going to pay for mine? Or in the middle of Hebrews, right? 
And if you're uh, just sort of here for the first time this morning, maybe you, you feel a little bit lost, but we're in the middle of this, this ancient sermon preached so long ago. We know it as the New Testament book of, of Hebrews. And we're in this sort of lengthy section right in the middle that describes how Jesus is the better priest. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better savior. And as we look at chapter nine this morning, we're going to try to answer three questions. Why is judgment necessary? What's with all the blood? And how is Jesus better? Someone has to pay for your sins. But why? Why is judgment necessary? Now, we heard the the text read a moment ago, and I'm going to jump around a little bit this morning. I actually want to begin at the end. Start there in verse 27. It says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Okay, so no reincarnation. No coming back as a squirrel or uh, getting a second chance to be a decent human. Uh, Sorry, zombie fans, right? Death only comes once. It says that. And and we joke about the only two things in life that are are certain, right? We say death and taxes. But I think actually, according to this, there's only three things that are certain in life. Death, taxes, and judgment. You see, for God to be just, he cannot just look the other way. And frankly, we wouldn't want him to, right? You can't see a story like 12 Years a Slave and want a God who just looks the other way. For God to be loving, he has got to do something. He can't can't go on letting us destroy ourselves and each other. The only God worth trusting is the one who hates the cancer eating away at the world he made and who promises to do something about it. You might not like the idea of God judging you, or of judging your friend, but there would be no meaning in the world without it. I mean, think about it. If, if nothing is wrong, then nothing is right. And life has no meaning. Now, it's pretty easy to say that the really terrible people should be judged what about me? I mean, we're not, we're not that bad, are we? Solzhenitsyn, the Russian author who suffered in the gulag, he writes, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And so the question, begged by this verse, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. The necessary question is, can God find a way to be just and to destroy evil in our world and destroy the evil that lives within me without also destroying me? Can he do it? Well, Hebrews says yes. But this is where it starts to get a little bloody. So let's, let's take a stab at it. Huh? Yeah, just go ahead, go ahead. It takes, takes a while. Humor that intelligent takes a while to trickle out. So, well, The word blood 
appears 11 times in these verses, right? In, in verses 11 through 28 of 9. And, and maybe you've always wondered, or, or maybe you're just sort of new to this Jesus thing and are, are a little bit curious, what's with all the blood, right? And Christians seem obsessed, don't we? I mean, if you've been in church all your life, you may not even realize how weird, how even kind of gross it is that we sing songs about some guy's blood, that we talk about it, that we drink a symbol of his blood on a regular basis in communion. It's a little bit strange. I mean, we, we Christians, we're, we're as obsessed with blood as a middle school girl reading Twilight. Maybe more so, Right? but there's a reason for it. Go back to verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Okay, what a, what a worship service, right? Are you imagining this? He's, he's literally throwing blood at the people, Okay. Maybe that's why the first rows are usually empty, right? You will get wet, right? I mean, think about what's happening here. Verse, verse 22 then. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without, listen to this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, blood is the price of our rebellion, I mean, it was the, the consequence clearly laid out in the Garden of Eden, right? You eat this fruit, you break this world and break yourself, and you will die. I mean, just think of the, the story that blood tells. I mean, even just in a simple way, right? I mean, your, your kid walks in covered in blood, tells a story. Or, or, or yesterday, I went on a bike ride. I've got a road bike. I love doing that on a beautiful day, and um, I have you know, clips, so my feet are clipped in, and I lost my balance, slipped, I couldn't get out of my clip in time, and I just slid along the pavement, okay? I have way less skin on this side of my body than I would prefer, okay? And so I walked in, and I was kind of a, a bloody mess after, I mean, that tells a story, right? Anytime there's blood, it tells a story. It tells a story that, that things aren't right, right? Some, something has gone wrong, and it's, it's an urgent story. Or even think about the stain that blood leaves, right? Both literally and metaphorically. Maybe you're familiar with the, the, the Shakespeare story of Lady Macbeth, right? Who, who constantly is trying to wash the, the blood, the invisible blood of murder off of her hands. And the blood of sheep and bulls told a story to the Jews. I mean, it's, it's foreign for us, even, even kind of appalling, right? This idea of animal sacrifice. We're so far removed. But for that culture, every religion of that day, this is how they worshipped, was through blood. And just imagine the reminder that it would have been for the Israelites. My sin is so bad. I mean, even that indiscretion, even that thing that I don't think is that big of a deal, it's so bad that I've got to take my best lamb, right, as a farmer, imagine that, my best lamb, I've got to bring it to the temple, to the priest, and stand there as, as its throat is slit, you, right? You hear it screaming. And you have to do that over and over and over again. My sin is that bad. And yet at the same time, for the, the faithful Jews in that context, it would have been a reminder of God's grace as well because they would have known, it should be me. 
It should be my throat that's cut. My God allows me to keep living because of this, this symbol of the forgiveness, the promise of one day the great and ultimate sacrifice that was coming. You see, you and I, slave traders or not, we spend the majority of our lives either ignoring God or flat out rejecting him. The one who made us. And somebody's got to pay for that sin. And the cost is death. But, but why? I mean, why, why can't God just forgive? Why is blood necessary? I mean, think about it. If God just winks at our sin, right, as we destroy ourselves and each other, ah, humans will be humans. He would be, he would be as evil as we are. And besides, forgiveness is always costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died in a concentration camp for resisting the Nazis, said, all forgiveness is suffering. If you're in a community group, uh, you recently read in your homework uh, Tim Keller's sort of explanation of of this. And basically he says that that nobody just forgives, like even us humans, right? There's, There's always a cost. You never just forgive anyone. He gives a couple examples. He talks about if someone wrecks your car, right? You can forgive them, but either way, somebody's got to pay for the damage, right? You can make them pay, or you can forgive them, and you can pay for the damage yourself, but somebody has to pay. And if you've, if you've ever been really wronged by another person, you, you know this. I mean, if somebody damages your reputation, for example, right? You can, you can make them pay, not, not financially necessarily, but you can retaliate, you can hurt them, you can ruin their reputation, or you can forgive them. But even if you do, right, the, the suffering continues, You pay the cost for what they've done against you because your reputation continues to be damaged. Either way, there's a cost. All forgiveness is costly. All of it is suffering. And so for God to forgive our rebellion, somebody has to own the cost. And the blood of animals? I mean, even the Israelites knew it was inadequate. So the author here, he refers to them as as mere copies, as as imitations of what we truly need for justice to be served. But regardless, we all all know the cost, right? At least to some extent. We all know what it's like to to do something wrong and feel that need to make amends, to to make up for our wrong, right? You've been there. I mean, for me, nine times out of ten, it's with my my tongue. I say something stupid, I hurt somebody, um, and then I have to deal with the consequences. A month or so ago, I, I blew it in a meeting. I was with some of our pastors. Um, and in my mind, it was a joke, right? Been there? It sounded funny in my head. Um, it really did. I, and I meant nothing by it, but as the words sort of like left, right, and I actually could hear them, and then I could see the look on the person's face that they were directed towards. It was like, come backwards, Right? It wasn't funny, it was mean. And I sat there, and the rest of that meeting, just sort of sick to my stomach, thinking about, how am I going to make amends for this? How and, and when can I, can I apologize? I mean, we, we know that weight, right? Our, our consciences get inflamed within us. Frankly, if you don't know what that feels like, right? We call people who don't feel any guilt sociopaths, right? We know the weight. We know that there's always going to be a cost. And in those moments of shame, there are really only a couple of options for us. Now, I want us to watch another clip from the movie. 
And watch this, this scene. It's as a, a former slave master explains how he managed his guilt. Let's, let's watch. Did you catch that? I mean, it's a little hard with the accents, right? The, the here, here's this former slave master who knows what it's like to take the whip. And he said, you know, nobody can do that. No person with a conscience can do that without also shredding at his own soul. And it pushed him, he said, towards one of two routes, right? The first of being just sort of making excuses for ourselves, right? If you ignore your conscience long enough, it'll stop working. And we justify our sins. Essentially, we try to be our own judge, just sort of push it aside and say, ah, it's really not that big of a deal. Or in the path he took, and I think, I think the way that we're most likely, the way I'm most likely to go is to find some way to trample it. Maybe not with whiskey. Maybe. But we trample, Right? Oh, do we trample with frequency, anything to help us forget our guilt. Food, relationships, always looking for the next real, next fun thing. Shopping, sports, video games, TV, busyness. I mean, honestly, sometimes I wonder if the reason you and I are so busy is because deep down we know that if we slow down, we'll realize just how empty our lives really are. How we try to trample the feelings of guilt and shame with just a hectic, distracted lifestyle. Someone has to pay for my sin. But is there another way than these two that he mentions? I mean, I sure hope so, because I've tried both of them, and they stink. Well, the author says Jesus. I'm sure a big surprise at this moment that that's where we've been headed. But how is Jesus better than our attempts to self-justify or to trample? How, how is he better than the blood of goats and bulls? Let's pick up again in verse 11. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with, tent, with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons and the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Yes, blood is weird. Especially as we think about animal sacrifice, right? We don't get it. We don't have a context for that. All the religions did it that day. It's just, it's strange. Some, some religions actually still do that, but they understood at the very least the necessity of judgment. I mean, other religions also in that day, they even demanded human blood, right? Human sacrifice. But in the Bible, we don't, see a God who merely demands human blood. Nor, nor even who just demands animal blood, right? Although he allowed it as a symbol for a time, we see a God who offers his own blood. Someone has to suffer for our sins. And our God, he enters the human race, right, as, as Jesus, and he raises his hand and says, here, here, send me. I'm, let me do it. Let me pay. And it's so easy for us to ignore. I mean, many people, even, even Christians, we try to brush this idea aside. Uh, theologians call it substitutionary atonement. 
It's the idea that, that Jesus took what we deserve, that he substitutes himself to atone for our sins. But come on, blood, wrath, death, I mean, it's all just, just seems so outdated for us, doesn't it? But how else do you explain Jesus' death? How else do you explain how justice can be held onto? Some say that the cross is it's really just meant as a metaphor. I mean, it really happened, but it's really just an inspiring story of, of God's love and grace that it wasn't necessary for, for God to forgive, but just sort of to, to teach us how to love. But think about that. I heard it explained a little bit like this. Imagine if you're going on a walk with your, with your best friend, uh, and she turns to you, and she, she stops, and she says, I love you so much, and I, I'm going to show you how much I, I love you. I'm going to teach you what love is. And then she jumps in front of a semi, slaughtering herself. It's not love. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And if that's, if that's what Jesus did, if that's all that's meant by his death, this metaphor that he loves us, he's an idiot. And I want nothing to do with him. But if, if, on the other hand, you're walking with your friend and you accidentally step in front of a bus and she pushes you out of the way, but in so doing, she is hit by the bus and killed. That's love. It's, it's tragic, it's painful, and yet that's be- there's nothing beautiful about a meaningless death. But everyone from every culture marvels when another person gives his life for somebody else. That's what we need. Jesus died in your place. His blood was spilt for you, for me. He suffered the the penalty for our rebellion. All the, the wrath that we deserve, God's anger towards sin that I deserve was poured out on him instead. It's the only way that God can destroy the evil that lives in here without also destroying me. So how is he better, Jesus? Let me mention three things. First, Jesus is better because shame can be removed. Not, not just forgiveness of guilt, oh, that's really important, but, but I love that it says our, our, our consciences can be cleansed. Look again at verse 14. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, it's sort of like, we're, we're sort of like Lady Macbeth, Right? endlessly scrubbing, trying to to clean the the invisible guilt and shame off of our hands, and we'll do anything we can to to make ourselves feel better, to to look a little bit better, but the only one who can wash us is Jesus. We try so hard to fix ourselves. We try so much to add to his redemption, right? As As if what he has done for us wasn't enough. Only he can clean us up. And not just on the outside, Because that's essentially what religion does, right? Religion is our attempt to to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves feel better, to look a little bit better. It's all sort of directed at the outside, but only his blood reaches down to our conscience where shame and guilt festers so that we can be changed. Let me tell you one one of the hardest things I've ever done as a pastor. It was, it was several years ago, um, it was through Advice and Aid Crisis Pregnancy Center, one of our ministry partners. They asked me to do this. I didn't volunteer. Um, 
But essentially, I, I helped lead a memorial service for a handful of women who had uh, been through abortions. Um, so it's kind of a, a time for them to, to grieve, right? To feel whatever. I mean, it's a voluntary thing. I mean, cri- the crisis pregnancy is to enter. I mean, they try to prevent abortions, but they also do a great job in caring for women who have taken that path and are hurting deeply. And it was, it was right up here. Um, and, I mean, essentially a memorial service for their lost babies. And what do you say in that moment? Right, with, that, with that kind of shame and despair, what, where do you begin, right? Well, you don't say a lot, truthfully. I mostly just sat up on these steps and cried with them. And yet I got to tell them that because of the blood of Jesus, no matter how much shame no matter how much guilt we feel, no matter how overwhelmed with despair we ever could be, that he washes us clean, even to the level of our conscience, that deep within, really, truly forgiven, even even me. Friends, you can keep trying to justify yourself, or or you can keep trying to, to trample your guilt, with whatever distractions you can find. Or you can let him wash you. Will you let him? It's not just our guilt. It's that our purpose can be restored as well. Because you and I, we were never meant to live like this. And in verse 14, it says that, that God did this. He did this, this purification for us, this cleansing for us so that we could serve the living God. Do you see that there? So that, that all that we are, everything we do, everything we have can serve the, the one that we're created for. I mean, let, let me give a little example of this. Truthfully, I often treat my sin way too casually, Right? I just sort of think, eh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not as bad as Master Epps, right? God will forgive me, won't he? I mean, anybody else, right? We, we do this so easily. And essentially, we're just, we're, we're exploiting Christ's blood in those moments. But in those moments, then, to sort of wake from my self-delusion and to realize that this is what it cost. I mean, my sin is that ugly. Even the, even the smallest, most, most insignificant seeming one required the blood of the Son of God in order to forgive me, in order to cleanse me. And, and, if, and if, if it's that ugly, then friends, we, we need to do everything we possibly can to fight the sin that still lives in here. Because it's there, right? And it's so easy to wallow. It's so easy to ignore it, to just say, well, this is who I am, or this is what our culture says, and, and all of that. We put it aside. But do we realize the price that's been paid for us. Jesus didn't die so that we could live a death-filled life. He he died to to restore our purpose so that we can serve him with everything that we are. Will you let him? But you know, Jesus' blood, it wasn't just for the past to cleanse us from sin, not just for the present, the restoration of meaning and purpose, it's also for the, for the future. The, the hope, that hope can be realized. The, the injustice in our world, all, all that we experience, that we, that we sort of, you know, that, that feeling that wells up within us when we see it, the pain and the ugliness, as well as the, the, the brokenness that continues to live within here, none of that will have the last word. And it's, it's promised right here. 
I mean, go back to, to where we started. It's at the end of, of chapter 9, verse 27. And, and just as is appointed for man to, to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He did that already through his blood. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Friends, he's not done here. He's not done with this world. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. He will come again and he will rescue. Are you eagerly waiting for him? You know, as I studied this week, there was one story in particular I just I couldn't sort of get off my mind as I was studying this, all this stuff. And I mean, it's an old, old story. Some of you probably haven't even heard of this individual. His name is William Cooper. Um, he lived 1731 to, to 1800. Um, he, more than just about anybody, I think, longed for our world to be made right and for himself to be made right. He, he lost his mom at age six as a boy, was sent off to a boarding school, terrible experience. His one, his one chance at marriage failed while he was engaged. He studied law, but he never practiced. And he was constantly, all of his life, in deep, deep, deep depression and dealt with paralyzing anxiety. And, and as, as someone who, who deals what I would call maybe a mild form of chronic depression, I mean, that's part of my story, um, my heart breaks for him and for people like this who struggle with this. And, and it was early on, right, age 21 is when he had his first mental breakdown. Um, again at 28, several suicide attempts, spent time institutionalized. Uh, At 32 then, he was absolutely overwhelmed by shame. Listen to what he writes. He says, a sense of God's wrath and a deep despair of escaping it instantly succeeded. The fear of death became much more prevalent in me than ever the desire of it had been. And again, he was committed. Uh, But this, this time... There, well, in, in the hospital, he found a Bible, and through the Bible, he found Jesus. And in some of his writings around that time, he was first drawn to, and I love this, he says that for, he read the Gospels for Jesus' sympathy towards miserable men. I love that. He saw that in his misery and said, that's, that's somebody I want to take seriously. And then as he continued reading, he, he read about his blood. And it's a little weird. But he saw there in the story of Jesus' blood that his shame could be removed, that his purpose could be restored, that hope could be realized, even for him. And he writes in that experience, he says, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed, and I received the gospel. I became friends with John Newton. Uh, he was a pastor in that day, a former slave trader who left that life behind. Uh, he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton was. They became friends, and they, they ended up, uh, Cooper and Newton wrote hymns together. They produced quite a few, like, hymnals kind of thing. Cooper wrote about 68. Only a couple of them, maybe some of us might possibly recognize Okay, they, didn't, they didn't make it terribly long, although for a couple hundred years for Coopers. 
And yet, for, for him, his story, I mean, his depression didn't end there. I mean, I wish I could say it did, like, you know, Jesus healed them, and they all lived happily ever, but it didn't. I mean, we know better than that, don't we? Sometimes that happens, but often we continue to struggle with things all of our lives, and for him, he dealt with waves of despair that were so strong that he would, he would be become convinced for seasons at a time that God couldn't possibly love him, couldn't possibly forgive him. But his, his most famous hymn, we're going to sing it in a moment, I don't think we've ever sung it here. Frankly, it might just be a little bit too bloody, okay? Um, but this was, this was the one thing that, that Cooper could cling to in the midst of his fear and his sadness and his shame that, that someone had given his life for him and there maybe, just maybe, was a little bit of hope. And I don't know your story. I don't know the things that weigh you down or um, rob your joy. I don't know the sins you deal with or the struggles you experience. And yet we all know someone's got to pay for our sins. And somebody has. Will we let him?